This is the Prairie Prophets Podcast with host Brandon Butler. It's the second to last day of October and we just spent most of it outdoors. There's really no other time of year I'd rather be in the woods than right now. And because my new friend Shane Staten, professional wetland scientist with Swallowtail, showed us a property where the company is working on wetland mitigation and stream bank enhancement. Did I get that right? Yeah, close enough, yeah. Close enough. We were able to spend the day out hiking and looking at what nature can do when you try to restore a property to its original state. Shane, thanks for the tour of the property today. Yeah, thank you. It was my pleasure. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about what we saw out there. Sure. So we went to a wetland and mitigation bank near California, Missouri. And a wetland mitigation bank is a property where you have done restoration, enhancement, or preservation of wetland or stream resources, where those activities were done in exchange for the permitted impacts from another project. So I can give an example or going to delve more into that. Well, really, it was you took what was farmland and returned it to a natural state. Yes. Yeah, so we, we bought the property around 2007 or so, and it's about 170 acres. It's called the Smith Creek Wetland and Stream Mitigation Bank. And we bought it as a farm property. We studied it to see how it had been drained in the past and what impacts had been done to the streams on the property. And then we designed a restoration plan for the site. And then the site's been built for 14 years now, so we got to walk around and see lots of, you know, about 60 acres of restored wetlands, about 40 acres of riparian plantings, some prairie areas, etc. So we breached a farm levee along Smith Creek. The property protects about 3,000 feet of that river, and there were about 8,000 feet of ephemeral streams that we restored on the property as well. And then what really mattered to me, there was a bunch of buck rubs and scrapes along the roads as well. It is, you know, if you were trying to hold my attention with all this other stuff, but there's a scrape here and a rub there and man, it's that time of year they're getting fired up. Exactly. It's, you know, if you build it, they'll come and that's really the rewards to us is when we see wildlife using the site. That's when we know that we've done a good job. That's cool. That's a great way to measure it. And we saw a lot of beaver activity. We saw a lot of different birds. Didn't see any turkeys. I assume they're there. We saw a rabbit squirrels, all the wildlife you would expect. We saw, uh, we found a couple deer that have have died. So coyotes and other critters are feeding on them. So it really is a very natural ecosystem. Yeah. And we saw it during the the fall time of a drought year. So there's normally a lot more water on the property. So you'd have a lot of water birds of egrets, herons, ducks. We did see a few ducks in the creek. Um, Beautiful woodies. And then this, the site is the first recorded location of smallmouth salamanders in Montauk County. They have tons of frogs, and so you get all sorts of those types of critters out there, too. Yeah, when we got up into the the higher elevations on the property and you had those prairie restorations, it, it was just like you've got it all on 175 acres. You've got these beautiful lowlands that are they're moist wetlands. You've got some hardwoods. You've got the prairie. I guess to be honest, you know, I know a lot about wetlands, I feel, probably more than the average person, but just not enough. So for those that are also wondering, like, what is the significance of wetlands? In general, I mean, a wetland is an area where it has enough water so that it changes the soils and the plant life that that lives there. 
And wetlands are really important for a lot of reasons, but I'd probably just pick the top three, which is flood control, biodiversity, and water quality. Floods are the most deadly natural disaster in Missouri and across the nation. And even, you know, 2019 was kind of a flood year in the area here, and we had about $70 million of flood insurance payments made in the state. And so that's the only the, the economic impact of the floods just based on the insurance program, the, the FEMA flood insurance program. Yeah, here on Prairie Profits, we talk a lot about prairie acting like a, a sponge in the sense that the deep root structures of prairie plants absorb a lot of water. But if prairie is the sponge, wetlands are kind of like the filter. Yeah. Can you explain that? Sure, yeah. And I can, you know, uh, wetlands also act as that sponge too because, you know, wetlands help keep us dry, because number one, wetlands exist in those depressional locations on the landscape so that when it does flood, the water goes in the wetlands. And there was a, a study that came out of Columbia University just last year that said that the average acre of wetland anywhere in the country provides about $750 of benefit annually in terms of its flood control benefits. And that average acre that's within a developed area provides about $3,300 of flood control benefits annually. So that adds up over time, obviously. So, you know, and that's only measuring the cost under that, under FEMA's National Flood Insurance Program. And so that's definitely an understatement of the economic value that wetlands provide for flood control. In terms of biodiversity, in a lot of metrics, wetlands rank up there with coral reefs and rainforests in terms of the biodiversity. And it, you know, you can kind of, anybody who's gone duck hunting in a wetland, gone fishing in a wetland, gone bird watching, can tell that they're very productive ecosystems. And on top of that, just biodiversity benefit, Think of all the family memories that are made or friendships that people have when, you know, going out duck hunting with your best friend or going bird watching with your family. So that's pretty clear. Now, we talk about prairie being one of the most decimated natural habitats in North America, especially tall grass prairie here in the Midwest. But wetlands are right there. Wetlands are, are not what they once were in these United States. Where do we stand as far as wetlands in America or even more specifically here in the Midwest? Sure. There was a study in about 1990. Congress had asked the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, how much wetland have we lost since the settling of our country? And so there, the Fish and Wildlife Service did a study and, and it has state-by-state state results. But Missouri, I believe, has lost about 87% of its wetlands. And so it's really a habitat type that is, is very endangered and that's also important for water quality benefits because as wetlands, wetlands have a, they punch above their weight class in terms of how much influence they have given how much space they take up on the landscape. And that's partly because water flows into them and is changed or detained and then flows somewhere else. So in a lot of ways, wetlands function like the kidneys of the landscape and it's very important to keep them healthy and to protect them. And that's partly because the unique soils that they have that allow a certain microbial community to, to live there. And instead of using oxygen to process their metabolism like we do, because the oxygen gets used up when this area gets flooded, it gets very complicated. But in general, the, the next microbial community that, that emerges uses nitrogen. So when fertilizer runoff flows into the wetland, the soils and the microbes in the soil process the nitrogen from the fertilizer into harmless nitrogen gas, and then cleaner water exits the wetlands. And there's a lot more processes to that, but that's kind of the main one and just an exa one example of, of the benefit that wetlands provide. We also talk about the fact that when we restore prairie, 
we're not bringing back the prairie that was there. You know, we're, we're building a new prairie basically on, on these lands. However, there are seeds still in the seed bank and in the soil. But what does a wetland mitigation look like? How do you bring back or restore a wetland to where it once was? Well, similar, I'd say it's very similar to how you characterize the prairie restoration. You know, you have to do some earthwork to grade the land so that it will capture and hold water. And then you want to put out the native seed and plugs and trees that you want to be out there. And you want to have a nice diverse uh, suite of those species. You also want to establish a lot of diverse hydrology. So you don't want to just have one flat bottom, you know, 12 inch deep pool. You want to have different water depths that will support different plants that will support different insects. And therefore you can get different communities of of animals to, to be out there. And we keep, you know, we've been using the term mitigation that I kind of like to expand on because mitigation is a term uh, that comes from the Clean Water Act because the Clean Water Act, as you know, is one of our landmark environmental laws that has a lot of different important parts. But one of them is that under Section 404 and Section 401, it establishes a federal and state permitting program for putting fill in wetlands and streams. And this is a very common development permit that's needed to acquire if you're developing a property. So if you're filling in a wetland to build a building on top of, if you're piping a stream in order to build a building on top of, if a city wants to armor a stream bank because it is eroding and threatening a roadway or homes, and you armor that stream bank, you have to get this type of permit. And so yep, in order to get the permit, you have to go through a review process and, and jump through a lot of hoops. And, and if you get your permit, though, you have certain conditions that you have to comply with and one of the main ones is that you need to perform what's called compensatory mitigation. And that's where this mitigation term comes from that we've been talking about. And what that means is you're going to be allowed to impact the wetlands and streams for your project, but you have to compensate for that environmental harm by restoring or enhancing or preserving wetland and stream resources elsewhere, and then legally preserving those areas in perpetuity. And so a mitigation bank is an area like the one we visited today where you go out in advance and build a large area. Maybe we went to a 170-acre area. We have 300-acre areas. There are even larger ones around the country. So therefore, you do that in advance, and then you quantify the environmental good that you did in terms of how many wetlands you created and what you did to improve the streams. Maybe you planted riparian forests alongside them. Maybe you did some work inside the stream channel. Maybe you breached a levee and you get a certain number of credits, which is just a quantification of the environmental good that you're doing. And then when a business or a city needs to get a, one of these permits, they're told by the government, you need to purchase so many credits. Your project had so many credits of impact, you need to buy so many credits of mitigation. If anybody's listening, thinking, man, he really knows what he's talking about. You have to consider how far we've come as a society in the restoration of these lands that we messed up. We were walking and talking today and I pointed out a car along a stream that's buried, you know, up to the top in the soil. And you told me that you have documentation that is from the government, what, 50 years ago or so? Uh, yeah. That explains how to line your stream bank with old cars. Talk about that that document. <laughs> yeah, so it's the old Soil Conservation Service, which is the predecessor to our new our Natural Resource Conservation Service now. And we have, it's a typical engineering detail showing how to you know lay the cars along the stream bank in order to stabilize that stream bank. And we've just come a long way from thinking that wetlands are wastelands 
and that you can just armor the stream by putting old refrigerators and your garbage in them and stuff. And so now there's, you know, a whole industry to deal with this. And, you know, a lot of this comes from environmental regulation because sometimes environmental regulation creates jobs. You know, they're the, not only are people out designing these types of sites, there are laborers who are out there planting trees, et cetera. You know, it, it, it really does have a positive environmental and economic benefit. It really does. And I, I brought up native plants and, and prairie along the streams. And you actually laid out a plan that was much more in depth. So erosion is a huge part of what we talk about with Horizon 2 and, and using prairie and, and native plants and grasses to keep soil where it belongs, like on your land. Farmers, landowners, they may not realize like how bad erosion is, especially on, on sloped gradients. You know, when, when your land is more hilly than it is flat, you're going to have bad erosion. If you don't keep it covered, your erosion is going to be worse. Along our streams, talk about the, the tiered system you were explaining with the rocks and the grasses and all the different natural elements that you use to keep soil where it belongs. Sure. You know, and sometimes when people hear, oh, it's, it's just dirt, you know, the problem is, too, that a lot of pollutants attach themselves to dirt and then get carried in down to downstream waters. But what we were talking about was the use of native plants to stabilize stream banks. And I mentioned, well, you know, you do need to look at, from an engineering perspective, the velocity and scour forces going through a stream channel, because there's no kind of cookie cutter answer. It depends on each individual stream. But often you'll have kind of a rock toe, if necessary, at, you know, just to hold that, that bottom. Because if you don't hold the toe of that stream bank, whatever you do above of that is going to be threatened. What's a toe? I'm sorry, the toe, right at the very bottom of the stream bank, right, right next to the water's edge or maybe Kind of where the water below. meets the... Yeah, yeah. Or, or below that slightly. Okay. Um, and then you can have, you know, native plants above that and you can try to select species that have, you know, you know, as you know better than anyone, a lot of these prairie species have wonderfully deep root systems. When you talk about doing reforestation along streams, are there trees that are better for that than others? Yeah, there are trees. It all kind of depends because there's different aspects of that because you want to have trees that are fast growing. And a lot of the trees that, are, that grow along streams like sycamores, silver maples, green ash, those are, are quick growing trees, cottonwoods, obviously, because those trees are adapted to the disturbance that streams provide because streams flood and that causes some kind of disturbance in the area. And then farther from the stream, you know, depending on the, the hydrology of the area, you can also establish some oaks, hickories, and et cetera, depending on the topography and things like that. And, you know, those species do come in. You could just go and plant cottonwoods, but you, by planting things like oaks, you kind of accelerate that process probably by 50 years or something. Because when we design a site, you both have to consider how it is now and also what it's going to be like in 50 plus years. We were talking about a prairie area, and then I had to explain, oh, I'm describing it as a prairie area, but we're also eventually going to be establishing trees. But you have to still plan for it being prairie with these little tiny, tiny trees in it, even though the long-term vision is that it's going to become a forest. You can't just establish those forest herbaceous species that are used to the shade in the full sunlight. There's an old saying that we've used on here before that you just can't get away from it, especially as I age and and. You know, my friends are all aging as well. You know, we're middle-aged now, like firmly rooted. And, you know, it's said that uh, society grows great when men plant trees whose shade they shall never know. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about, you know, planning for this land to look a certain way that we won't even be around to see. 
And man, in one way, it's very like alarming, you know, that, that we're headed towards our own mortality. But yet these lands live on. So the work that we're doing today will hopefully live on. And in a way, you know, not to be cheesy, but in a way then we live on right. a little bit more. And hopefully someone will come along and continue that process of paying it forward as they enjoy the trees and habitat work that we did today. They'll see the value in that and continue that for tomorrow. Right. Yeah, as we were talking today, I was explaining how I think I, am, I feel very fortunate about this job because I've been at it for 18 plus years and I've gotten to, you get to observe these sites come from a farm parcel to newly planted to first year, second year, third year, fourth year. You get to see the sites mature and you get to see the ecological succession and it's both intellectually interesting and it's also very emotionally rewarding. So I feel very fortunate. Well, one thing that I took away, it's fun when, you know, we just met today, we've communicated online a little bit and um, you were talking about your daughter. You have a a 15 year old daughter. I've 17 and 18 year old daughters, but you were comparing this property to your daughter's age there. You've had it, what, 14 years, your daughter's 15. So it's like, you can almost like see this parallel evolution of your own personal life, your own child with this property that you're also nurturing. That's a pretty beautiful way to like make a living. It is. So talk about your background a little bit. Like, who are you? How did you get into this? What's driving you to be out there restoring wetlands? Sure. Well, I think I would presume that like everybody else you've had on the show, you know, I got into this line of work because I'm really interested in being outdoors. I've always loved being outdoors in nature and interested in animals. I thought I was going to be a wildlife biologist when I was fairly young and then got a degree in biology and environmental conservation, and then a master's degree dealing with wetlands and forestry and moved to the St. Louis area. Now, you got to go ahead and brag about where, where you went to school. I went to UC Berkeley and, and Duke University. See, I, my, my alma maters are Purdue, Gonzaga, and University of Missouri. So, like, those are great. you didn't rub it in, all those oh. national championships. I, I keep, I'm just going to go back and get another degree somewhere that wins national championships in basketball. Basketball season's about to start, and I mean, it's got to feel good to have that. Like, I can tell you're talking about UC Berkeley, <laughs> those, <laughs> those Blue Devils. But you might be in for a tough run for a while. I don't know. Coaches matter. I, I take no no blame or credit <laughs> for anything that goes on in those things. Duke football's looking up these days. So, anyways, I yeah. digress. No, no, no. So let's see. I moved to the St. Louis area within a fairly short period of time. Landed in in the right place at the, uh, this company. Uh, which where I'm just one part of a really great team and I've got to be there as the company's evolved. And we now have 21 approved wetland and stream mitigation banks across Missouri and Kansas. If you combine them all together, they add up to about 2,700 acres, which is a little more than four square miles and uh, gotten to see, you know, lots of different parts of the state and, and into Kansas. And we're starting to get into the species banking a little bit as well, which means that you're, preserving or restoring critical habitat for threatened or endangered species, which is becoming a a bigger and bigger issue, particularly bats are being hit really hard with white nose syndrome. Mm -hmm. And and so that's becoming a big part of the federal permitting system is that the the impacts to bat species through the cutting down of their summer roosting trees is starting to have, you know, being taken into account a lot in a lot of federal permits. So so we're starting to get into that as well a little bit. It's good to diversify. We really look at ourselves as a habitat restoration company. 
and then try to find the different ways that we can monetize that in order to make the the effort be economically feasible. So how is your business successful? So what happens is we, by the, through the restoration of these projects, we get credits. And then when the permittees have to buy credits, you know, they have to pay for them. And that basically finances the the process. We also build and, and do some minor design of wetland detention basins in the Kansas City area, et cetera. So we're kind of a, you know, like I said, a habitat restoration company. So if somebody has land that they would like to turn back into a wetland, see it restored to a more natural state, is that something you guys can help with? I think we could definitely help with that. We've not done any private work like that, but I don't see why we could not. We're the largest well industry mitigation bank company in, in Missouri and Kansas. So if you're not doing private work, then would this be something like the Department of Conservation would hire you or the Department of Natural Resources? Who's hiring you guys to do this stuff? Well, so the Department of Conservation and, and NRCS would already know, you know, they would have people similar to myself in terms of qualifications, and they would be able to do that work themselves. Basically, we're doing this for ourselves, where we buy the property and we do the work, and then we get to manage that site in perpetuity or for as long as we hold on to it, and then it's through the selling of the credits that that's how it, it gets financed. So it's not that some individual comes to us and starts that. We just kind of self-start. And then the benefit to society is simply a healthier landscape. Exactly. Everything so, downstream of your wetlands is cleaner and, and better. Exactly. Now, it's not a perfect environmental good because it's done in exchange for the impact of these other projects, but they tend to be more degraded areas closer to urban locations where you have a lot more invasive species or the streams are incised, et cetera. So, you know, when you go down to one of our wetlands, it's much more diverse and much more habitat quality in general than the average one. But yeah, you know, that's the thing about wetlands is that they provide a lot of societal benefit, which is why they're a regulated ecosystem, because the, you know, the wetlands on your property are affecting everyone else. And that's why there's been kind of the, the crisis we have right now is that there was a 2023 Supreme Court case called Sackett versus EPA, where the government entity, the, the regulators being the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and the EPA are still figuring out some of the details. But in essence, the ruling was that wetlands are not going to be under federal jurisdiction you don't have to get a permit to impact a wetland unless it's touching or virtually touching the river or the creek. So some of these floodplain wetlands that are, you know, 100 feet away from the stream or they're separated from the stream by a small natural levee, you know, those would not, you wouldn't need a permit to, to impact that. And so that's going to cause a tremendous harm to our society through flood control loss, for one thing, and all the other benefits that I've talked about. And so a lot of people are kind of rallying about them, trying to figure out what they want to do. The Society of Wetland Scientists Central Chapter, which is the local chapter of the main professional organization for uh, academics and, and consultants who deal with wetlands, recently passed a resolution for the protection of wetlands. And I know other conservation-minded folks are, are talking about it around the state. So if anybody was interested in this, you can feel free to, uh, if you just go to swallowtailenvironmental.com and you can contact me through that and I'd be happy to get you in contact with other people who are interested in that. But like I said earlier, you know, wetlands help keep us dry and so we need to help preserve them, don't, not fill in those areas because that water is going to go somewhere else that might be more important. Yeah, I think another aspect you just touched on, you said 
we as in your society of professional wetland scientists, which really is a pretty small niche, right? Yes. And we were talking when we were walking about communications. And I talked about how I had once created a class at the University of Missouri to teach scientists how to communicate very technical knowledge basically downstream to those of us who aren't as smart as you guys, which I totally classify myself as. And, and you agreed, like you guys do a lot of talking amongst yourselves and writing white papers that might as well be in Greek because only you guys understand them, but getting this information out to the masses, that's where real value lies because your elected officials come from the masses most of your elected officials are not professional wetland scientists. So I, I commend you for reaching out and, and coming on the podcast today and helping share this information because it really is important. And the more people in society that come to understand the value of land that many would cast off as, you know, barren wasteland. Oh, look at that, like marshy property. Why aren't there corn and beans on that property? Well, there's value to that land being there, and you've done a good job today of explaining why. Yeah, so thank you. I appreciate I, that. I appreciate the opportunity very much. So thank you very much. 25 minutes goes quick, but I think if you guys are out there watching Prairie Profits TV, you're probably going to get a chance to see Shane in the future because I'm going to twist his arm into doing a, an episode of the TV show with us. So that Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Shane. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Prairie Profits Podcast with host Brandon Butler. 